Welcome back to 10 and 20, official podcast with the Battle of Franklin Trust, where we talk about interesting aspects of Tennessee history in roughly 20 minutes. My name's Brad. And my name's Sarah. This is the first episode of season two. Yay! Thanks to those of you who have been regular listeners since we came out with this show about a year ago. We've heard from quite a few of you. Um, So thank you so much, and we've got a lot of fun things planned for this season. And this episode, we are going to talk about John McGavick, son of Randall McGavick. You may remember, we did an episode of him last season, and owner of Carnton during the Civil War. We'll be following this up in two weeks with an episode on John's wife, Carrie, and the family's experiences here during the Civil War. John's story is interesting for quite a few reasons. He was familiar with the first two presidents from Tennessee. He was a wealthy, well-respected, and influential businessman and slave owner. And he had a front row seat in the political chaos that pushed our country towards civil war. John McGavick was born to Randall and Sarah McGavick on April 2nd, 1815, the same year the first house was built here at Carton. John was well-educated. He attended Old Harpeth Academy in Franklin, Tennessee, and studied briefly at the University of Nashville. John's story is also interesting because of who he was connected to. His father, Randall, was good friends with Andrew Jackson, and it seems like Jackson had taken an interest in John at at a young age. One newspaper article, which was written by Peggy Eaton, who was a close associate of Andrew Jackson. And a resident here in Franklin. Stated that, I remember one of the sons very well, John McGavick, for he was a great favorite of General Jackson. You know, can't really argue with that. (laughs) And another one, another person he was very closely associated with was James K. Polk. Also likely due to his father's political connections, when Polk becomes governor of Tennessee in 1839, John served as one of his aides to camp. This meant that John was working as Polk's trusted personal assistant and advisor. And this may not sound that big of a deal, but when I think you factor in the fact that he's 25 years old at the time, it means a lot because I'm currently 25 and I can't imagine being an advisor to the current governor of Tennessee. That's very young. John likely received assistance in this appointment from his uncle, whose name was Felix Grundy, who was a very influential lawyer and politician in his own right. In a letter that Grundy wrote to James K. Polk shortly after Polk won the election, Grundy congratulated Polk and said, I think you had better appoint John McGavick of Williamson County, one of your staff. I hope you will not omit this, as the appointment will be both judicious and political. I feel like that's that letter coming from Felix Grundy was almost like, hey, you better do this. Yeah, because Felix Grundy saying he's an influential lawyer and politician is kind of an understatement. He was a very influential lawyer and politician. Right. And according to a newspaper article dated January 10th, 1840, it was from this appointment that John received the rank of colonel. And he carries this title with him for the rest of his life. Oftentimes you see him referred to as Colonel John McGavick. John's father, Randall, died in 1843. And he split his nearly 1,400 acres in Franklin between his two living sons. John received 640 acres and the house itself, the house that we're in right now. Technically, John's mother had a life estate to the property, which a life estate was a way for a man to ensure his wife had a comfortable place to live for the rest of her life. Uh, But John inherited the property officially when she died in 1854. Upon inheriting the home, John began a series of renovations. There were a few minor modernizations he did, like changes in paint and wallpaper, but really 
the largest change, and I really think the most significant, was adding on the two porches. The house was built in the federal architectural style, which was a dominant style here in the early 19th century. And around the time John Herit's a home, though, that's going out of date, and Greek revival is in full swing. So in 1847, John adds a portico to the front of the home, and a few years later, he adds a larger back porch. This decision was probably likely influenced by his wife, Carrie. On December 8, 1848, John married Caroline Elizabeth Winder, who was known as Carrie. John was 33 years old at the time, and Carrie was 19. This age difference was pretty standard for their day and age. Often a man would wait until he had established himself in his career and had inherited land and a home, and then he would marry a younger woman with whom he would start a family. They were married in Terrebonne Parish, Louisiana, by Reverend Mr. Daniel McNair. The wedding is described by Carrie's father, uh, Van Perkins Wander, and I love what he wrote in a letter to his cousin. He said they were married at about 10 o'clock in the morning and immediately left for their home in Tennessee. The wedding was a very private affair, which Carrie wanted. Carrie was married in her traveling dress, no display of any kind. Another little wrinkle in the story is that (laughs) Carrie's grandmother and John's mother were sisters, meaning that the two were first cousins once removed. The more you think about that, the more weird it seems, because it also means that Carrie's children were her own second cousins. Yeah, that may sound sort of icky today, but it was actually pretty common back then, especially for the aristocratic class where marriages were often predetermined by parents who wanted to ensure that their children married into their social equals and, well, that money was kept in the family. Carrie will be the main character of our next episode in two weeks, so you're going to hear more about her soon. John came into possession of a large piece of land in Louisiana, Carrie's home state. John started a sugar plantation on this land, and he and Carrie would often travel back and forth between Tennessee and Louisiana. Carrie and John had five children together. They had three girls and two boys. And those children in order were Martha Winder in 1849, Mary Elizabeth in 1851, John Randall in 1854, Harriet Young in 1855, and Van Winder in 1857. Sally, though, three of these children died when they were young. John Randall died at just a few months old in 1854. Mary Elizabeth McGavick died on January 26, 1858. While visiting family down in Louisiana, a Martha Winder died in 1862. 1862 was particularly tragic for John because his brother James and his sister Mary both died that year as well. And now I think it's important to talk about John as a businessman because it was really, it was under John's leadership that the farm at Carnton flourished. He diversified what the farm focused on. In 1850, they were producing huge amounts of corn, grain, and sweet potatoes. Yeah, lots and lots of potatoes. But in 1860, it seems he was more concerned with livestock production. He also had a sawmill constructed and purchased two slaves who were skilled sawyers, or sawmill operators, for which he paid $2,500 each. That's roughly $75,000 in day's terms, and honestly, far more than what the average enslaved person costs around that time. The value of the farm also increased substantially under John's leadership. According to the census of 1860, the estate at Carnton was worth $339,000, which was made up of $150,000 in land and $189,000 in estate value. Due to inflation, that equals about $9 million in today's money. These were some of the wealthiest folks in the area. 
and a large portion of this estate value was based on the number of enslaved individuals who were living and working at Carton at the time, which we'll talk about a little bit more in just a moment. In 1860, John won an award for the best farming estate in Williamson County. Um, that The article that we pulled that from is also interesting because the farm is referred to as Carnton, but it's spelled a little bit off. It's spelled Carndon or Carndon. But it's interesting because by that time, people knew this farm as Carnton. Yes. They tended to spell the name wrong a lot of times. Yeah. We've realized in their research. And still, I mean, guests walking in see the name on the board and it's a hard word. We hear Carnation Plantation, Carntown, yeah. Centrin, I've heard. You've heard Centrin? Centrin, yeah. Oh, that's probably the weirdest one. <laughs> John also had a couple of other business ventures other than his farm. In 1852, John was an organizing director of the Tennessee and Alabama Railroad. He also served a term as the director of the Bank of Tennessee. So I want to stop for a minute and just talk about something that you touched on a minute ago, and that's John McGavick and slavery. John's life was one that was shaped by slave ownership. Uh, he was born into a wealthy slave-owning family, and he owned many slaves himself, both at Carnton and at his Louisiana sugar plantation. And I think it's good to note this. This is not unique to John. John is kind of our case study in a way that relates to so many people here in the South at the time of before, I guess, and during the Civil War. Yeah, John lived in a world of a racial hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And he happened to be born into the class or the race that was at the top of that racial hierarchy. In fact, um, in 1860, he owned more people than his father ever did. From childhood, John had slaves cook, clean, empty chamber pots, grow the food he would eat, take care of the crops, and tend the livestock. Slavery was deeply rooted into every aspect of his life. In the federal census of 1840... When the property was still owned by Randall McGavick, there were 20 enslaved individuals at Carnton. 20 years later, in 1860, that number had doubled, well, really more than doubled, to 44. While John owned the sugar plantation down in Louisiana too, you have to account for those enslaved individuals working on that farm as well. Yeah, we have way more research about the slaves that John owned at Carnton, but he owned many people in Louisiana on top of that. John inherited at least 10 slaves from his parents. And interestingly, Carrie owned at least 10 slaves herself. But although Carrie technically owned some of the slaves, the couple likely did not differentiate between them. John was the patriarch. He was the owner of the property. Most of them would have been acting as if they were John's, even though on paper they were Carrie's. Some of them were. Because we only have record that John purchased two slaves those being the two that he bought to operate the sawmill. Now, that doesn't mean that John did not purchase more slaves. In fact, he likely did. We just don't currently have any records of it. And it's also worth noting that nothing on the farm would have been possible if it weren't for these enslaved individuals. John may have owned them, but it was the slaves themselves who had the skills to make the farm function. And the house itself was likely built by enslaved labor. The house is a testament to their skill and craftsmanship. And then this is something that we, we alluded to in the very beginning, but it's a moment that's really important in John's life and in national politics. In 1860, John was involved in the U.S. presidential election. He was a lifelong Democrat, which we mentioned earlier, his connections to Polk and to Jackson. But in 1860, John attended the Democratic National Convention in Charleston, South Carolina. This was the convention in which the Democratic Party 
was supposed to decide their candidate for president or supposed to nominate their candidate for president. And it's interesting to think what had happened in just the few years before 1860. So we're just going to run through a few of those big events. Number one, the Republican Party, which our regular listeners will remember was founded as the Anti-Slavery Party, was formed in 1854. In 1856, the party's first presidential election, the Republican candidate received roughly one-third of the popular vote. That's huge for a new party that had just been founded. After that, the Dred Scott decision was made by the Supreme Court in 1857, which stated that African Americans had no rights which the white man was bound to respect, and effectively meant that slave owners could bring their slaves into any state they wanted, whether that state allowed slavery or not. And John Brown decided to start a slave revolt in Harper's Ferry, Virginia, in 1859. And although Brown failed, this attempt led to widespread fear in the American South. If you want more of a breakdown of the events that led up to war, listen to our William Walker series. In episode two, we ended by breaking down those things even more. But what we're getting at is this was perhaps the most critical presidential convention in United States history. Anti-slavery sentiment was growing in the North, and the Democratic Party would be deciding who they would run against Abraham Lincoln. The results of this convention are part of what led directly to the Civil War. Now let's go to that convention in 1860. At the beginning of the convention, there were six major candidates, and Stephen Douglas was considered the frontrunner. Andrew Johnson from Tennessee was another one of the major candidates, at least early on. He would go on to be Abraham Lincoln's vice president in Lincoln's second term, and he would become president himself after Lincoln was assassinated. Stay tuned because we'll be doing an episode on Andrew Johnson, hopefully in the near future. The convention was divided from the start. In order to win, a candidate needed to receive two-thirds of the vote. The vote ended up being taken 57 times. So a couple of little interesting things that took place during that vote. Senator Jefferson Davis received at least one vote in 51 out of the 57 times the vote was taken. That vote was from Benjamin Butler of Massachusetts. The reason that's interesting is because, ironically, Davis would go on to become president of the Confederacy, and Butler would become a general in the United States Army. The leading candidate throughout this convention was Stephen Douglas, but he never received the necessary two-thirds of the vote. So the Democrat Party voted to reconvene in Baltimore later. Eventually, the party fractured, and Northern Democrats nominated Stephen Douglas, Southern Democrats nominated John C. Breckinridge, And a new party arose called the Constitutional Union Party, which nominated John Bell from Tennessee. Because the Democratic Party failed to nominate one individual candidate, they allowed Abraham Lincoln to win the presidency while only receiving 40% of the popular vote. Because people were eventually voting between four different major candidates. Right. And John had a front row seat for all of this. Williamson County, John's home, was pulled in two directions, with some voting for John Bell, a Tennessee native, and others voting for John C. Breckenridge. And John would have likely voted for one of those two candidates himself. So Lincoln's election was what tipped the United States towards war. Almost immediately, seven states seceded from the Union directly because of the threat and the institution of slavery. Lincoln was inaugurated in March of 1861. Four more states seceded shortly thereafter. Tennessee was the last. And honestly, we don't know John's opinions on secession. 
Andrew Jackson was a close family friend, and Jackson was a strong believer in the Union. There is a chance that John felt on the fence about secession. In February of 1862, less than a year into the war, Ulysses S. Grant led a United States Army through Middle Tennessee, and he took over Nashville. With Nashville less than a day's trip away, thousands of enslaved individuals in Middle Tennessee made their way to Nashville in order to grasp freedom. Because of this, John decided early in the war to send most, if not all, of his slaves farther south to prevent them from escaping or getting caught up in the northern war effort. John likely leased other people's slaves to run the farm, work in the house during the rest of the war. And when I have, when I have guests ask about this on tour, it, it strikes a lot of people as interesting because John's sending the people he owns farther away. And the way I describe it is, honestly, it seems to me like a transfer of liability. Yes, he wants to protect the investment that he put into his slaves. Right. And then other locals willing to risk keeping their slaves here stood, stood to make a lot of money by potentially leasing them to people like John. Although the original document has yet to be located, it is believed that John McGavick signed his oath of allegiance to the United States government during the war. The evidence for this primarily comes from post-war documents, but we have to ask ourselves, why would John have declared his loyalty to the United States? Number of different reasons. It could be taken at face value. He believed that the war was a mistake and felt legitimate loyalty to the United States. Or it could have been purely practical. Taking the oath would have made it easier for John to travel and remain in business throughout the Civil War. But it's good to note that John wasn't the only person to do this either. Many of the influential, wealthy men in the Nashville area were doing the same thing, including John's brother. We're going to talk more about the McGavick family's experience during the war in our next episode, which will focus more on John's wife, Carrie. But for now, we're going to leave you with this. John McGavick was not someone who was loud about his beliefs or political opinions. He seems to have been someone who acted with a quiet surety and who was widely respected for his kindness and hospitality. In fact, he was so well-loved that when he died in 1893, all businesses in Franklin closed out of respect for him during the hour of his funeral. And that wasn't common. That's not something that they did for just everybody. His life was also one that was shaped by slave ownership in a community, in a society that did not believe that all men were created equal. Slavery was a multi-generational practice for the McGavicks. None of what John did or what he accomplished would have been possible if it were not for the people that he owned. The United States was unable to deal with the institution of slavery in the time of the founders. The institution was able to fester and grow across the South. And by 1860, there were nearly 4 million enslaved individuals in our country. Over 12,000 of them were in Williamson County, and 44 of them lived at Carnton. And on November 30th, 1864, approximately 40,000 Men and boys lined up on either side of the McGavick family home. Can fire exploded across the fields, around the McGavick house, and that night, the home was filled with hundreds of wounded and dying Confederate soldiers, while some of the bloodiest fighting of the entire Civil War raged less than a mile away. History landed on John McGavick's doorstep. So that concludes episode one of season two. And we do have many fun things planned for this season, so you better stay tuned. 
And make sure that you subscribe to this show on iTunes or on whatever podcast app that you use to make sure that you don't miss an episode. And whatever app that you use to listen, make sure if you get a chance to leave us a review while you're there. It certainly helps us out. Yes, and it's good to see what you guys are thinking of the show too. But if you'd like to support us, you should pick up one of our 10 in 20 t-shirts available in-store at Carter House in Carton or online at store.boft.org. And I think we're almost out of this particular design. So if you want it, you better order it now. Follow us on social media. On Instagram, we are 10in20podcast, T-E-N-N-I-N-2-0 podcast. And you can also follow Carnton and Carter House on Facebook. You could reach out and send us an email at podcast at boft.org. Let us know if you like some of the changes that we've implemented this season or if you have suggestions of things that we could do in the future. So thank you so much for listening. Tune back next time. 